Lots of people want to give to good charities, but how can you maximize the good you accomplish for every dollar you give? Well, GiveWell does in-depth research to identify a short list of exceptional charities that do just that. GiveWell's top recommended charities are evidence-based and help the poorest people in the world. Visit www.givewell.org to make your charitable donation go further. All right. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Uh, I'm Matthew Iglesias. Joining me today, we have Ezra Klein and Sarah Cliff. Uh, we got a we got a good white paper for you uh, coming up. I mean, it's a it's a it's kind of a sad, somewhat infuriating white paper, but it's a good research. It's an interesting white paper. Yeah, yeah it is sad conclusion. It's good good research. Uh, but first, uh, we got the uh, the Thanksgiving holiday coming up. I hope that you are taking time away from from your family to instead listen to us. Um, ideally, because you know, family. No, you should listen to the podcast before your Thanksgiving dinner so you have scintillating conversation to make. Exactly. Yes. Don't you want to sit around at dinner and be like, did you hear about that white paper? And then if they didn't, you can recommend the show to your family. There you go. Friends. Exactly. That's good thinking. That is good thinking. Uh, no, so, you know, we want it to be, it's it's a little bit corny, but we are corny people and talk in the Thanksgiving spirit about what, what we are feeling thankful for. So you want to kick us off, Ezra? I do. I'm, I'm going to feel thankful for two things. So when Donald Trump was inaugurated, I like that. What am I thankful for? When Donald Trump was. Uh, it is sweet. <laughs> it's a good soundbite. There you go. We're thankful um, for the clicks. <laughs> so when Donald Trump was inaugurated, I had two concerns that were a little bit unique to Trump, right? U- unique to Trump versus, you know, if just someone else had become president. One was that Donald Trump has very strong man authoritarian tendencies and, and, and desires. He praises authoritarian leaders abroad. He clearly has very little respect for the freedom of, of, of press at home. He, uh, across a lot of different levels, has talked about reta- using the federal government to retaliate against his enemies. Um, he's done that over and over and over again. Uh, so one, I was worried that he would be illiberal in a way that would really erode some of the, the foundations of American democracy and or would just lead to a lot of punishing retribution against his enemies. The, the executive branch is a powerful thing. Um, and then the other thing that worried me about Trump, uh, again, a bit unusually, was his ability to create and to embody and to create space for a kind of cultural backlash, right? And, and to the degree to the embodiment of this, right, the march in Charlottesville was clearly white supremacists who were emboldened by, by Donald Trump's election. But there are other things, too. Donald Trump speaks about immigrants in a more... He would call it a less politically correct way, but I would call it a more bigoted way. Um, He's more misogynistic. He had been caught on tape bragging about sexual assault. He had more than a dozen sexual assault sexual assault charges against him uh, on the record from from various women during the campaign, and he won anyway. Uh, There's a lot Donald Trump said that that made it seem to me that he was going to open up space or maybe represented uh, the, the reopening of space for a real backlash to some, I think, reasonably important cultural changes and trends we'd seen. And I think in both cases, the full extent of my concerns have, for important reasons, not come true. And actually, there's reason even for hope. So going to the first thing, uh, the authoritarianism, Donald Trump is just too incompetent to be an effective authoritarian. Uh, There is this pretty remarkable uh, interview he gave on, on the radio about a month ago now, 
where he said, you know what the saddest thing is? It just makes me so sad that the president, I'm not allowed to be involved with the Department of Justice. I can't go after Hillary Clinton. I'm not supposed to get involved with the FBI. You can imagine a Donald Trump who was instantiating his extremism and his hopes by smartly working with the bureaucracies, by building relationships, by putting, you know, an FBI director in charge who liked him and and, and who would do what he said, by being very close with the, the attorney general, Jeff Sessions, and working with him very closely and trying to use the Department of Justice to fulfill his ends and on and on and on down the line. And that has really not been the Donald Trump we've seen. He came in and immediately picked a fight with the CIA and much more importantly uh, and aggressively the FBI after he fired James Comey. Uh, so he did not get the intelligence apparatus on his side, which would have been very dangerous. Instead, they hate him um, and appear to be on a reasonably coordinated campaign of leaks against him. He led to the Robert Mueller investigation, which I think has actually done a pretty useful job constraining what he can and can't do and creating a lot of threat around his presidency. He decided to pick a series of fights and then publicly humiliate Jeff Sessions in ways that presumably have made Jeff Sessions somewhat less uh, favorably uh, disposed towards him. He has been so over the top in his outlandish attacks on the media that I think there's more recognition that, that what he might do there is dangerous and, and would be more societal pushback to it. He's just not been building the structure and building the relationships and operating with the discipline and the persistence and the approach that I think you would need to do the kind of harm that, that many thought, and including me to some degree, thought he might be capable of. That doesn't take away from the problems of his liberalism. It doesn't mean there are no problems with it. It doesn't mean it's not a bad thing. The president of the United States just talks randomly about investigating his enemies and retaliating against NBC because he doesn't like their reporting. But I do think that Donald Trump has just proven too erratic and personally in, undisciplined and distra easily distracted. He's not interested in learning about the bureaucracy and how to leverage it. And I think that's actually been a, a good thing. I think that he's exposing a lot of problems we have, but I don't think he is being able to exploit them in, in the ways that he might have. The other thing that we're seeing- There's which a is, lot of thanks, man. We got some episode here. Can you right. imagine dinner with Ezra? So yeah, it's going to be a long time before anyone gets their turkey. <laughs> Well, fine. You guys go. <laughs> I know. Okay, sure. finish your list. Sorry, I don't want to finish my list now. We want to know. We want to know, Ezra. I didn't expect this. This is the worst <laughs> Thanksgiving ever. <laughs> um, okay. All right. The other thing is that <laughs> the, the other thing is that a lot of what. I thought Trump was going to be able to do with this sort of representation of the backlash to political correctness does not really appear to be coming true and is maybe um, actually emerging into a pretty powerful backlash to the backlash. So one, if you look at polling, America has become quite a bit more favorable towards immigrants since Donald Trump got elected, which I just think is a good sign. The other is that the, the Me Too movement, given that Trump is a noted sexual harasser who got elected, who had talked about this on tape. And it seemed that maybe one of the lessons of the election was that America just wasn't going to take these kinds of questions all that seriously. The Me Too wave that has happened that has now engulfed members of Congress, top members of the media, um, top people in entertainment, folks in a lot of other industries. We're seeing it in technology. I mean, it, it's really everywhere. We're talking right after the allegations came out about Charlie Rose, right after Vox reported the allegations against Glenn Thrush in the New York Times. Uh, there's a lot going on here. And I had a really interesting discussion with Rebecca Traster on, on my podcast the other day. And she was saying that she really thinks that this would not have happened if Donald Trump had lost, that there is a way in which 
his win really activated this moment. It activated uh, a, a sense that something was was truly, truly wrong here. It primed people to take it more seriously. And that, you know, one possibly silver lining of, of him winning has been a real recognition of how widespread and, and how unseriously this problem had been taken. So I'm thankful for the Me Too movement. I think this is a really important set of cultural changes. And I'm also thankful that Donald Trump has not been more effective than he's been at taking what he represents and making it the cultural norm. In some ways, he seems to have coalesced opposition to what he represents and is maybe going to be part of what makes it less of a cultural norm. You know, I mean, I I have so many mixed feelings about this competence question where there's obviously some upside to it, right? I mean, I do think it it is true that Donald Trump has not consolidated an authoritarian regime in a, in a way that, that I once feared. At the same time, I think that it's, I think that, you know, in, say, some of the health policy stuff that we have talked about, that, like, Trump's lack of, like, real understanding of, like, the system, of both, like, the policy and the levels of bureaucracy and how the political system functions is, like, landing us at worse outcomes for human beings than we could have with, like, a sharper president who takes command of the situation and, like, does a good job and tries to focus on his his sort of core goals. I mean, I look at, at Puerto Rico, where, like, as far as I can tell, the president has decided that since it's off cable news, it's, like, not important to try to, to deal with anything. And I, I worry constantly about you know, not like maybe he'll do bad tweets and we'll have a war, but just like things, it's still kind of like springtime for Donald Trump, you know? And it's like, what if things get things get bad mm-hmm. and like we have a president who like can't, can't do it, you know? And I'm, I'm like, I'm glad that we have not descended into a Putin-esque dictatorship. Um, I'm also impressed that Vladimir Putin uh, managed the uh, oil price shock of 2014, like, really well and, like, stabilized the Russian macro economy at a time when a lot of outside observers were, like, confident that things were going to completely fall apart for him. Like, he's, um, he's, a, he's a bad man, but, like, is good at his job. <laughs> And it it worries me to ha- to to be thinking that like we're gonna be saying, well, it's a good thing that the president doesn't have any idea what he's doing because it's there's there's real downsides. And I also I have kind of mixed feelings on like the not on the Me Too movement, but kind of like what it represents and like if it represents actually some real progress and movement forward. I think you know, like Rebecca, you mentioned, you know, she mentioned on your podcast about how Trump kind of led to this unleashing. And I think you definitely, I mean, you saw that the day after the election with the Women's March, which is something you'd never really seen before, which seemed like very organic and kind of has morphed into a Me Too movement. And you do see some very powerful men being held accountable. But I think the jury is still out on whether you see powerful male politicians being held accountable. You know, we've seen a lot of men suspended or fired from their news organizations but we haven't really seen a lot of consequences for men in, in Congress. Al Franken is still in office. He's being investigated. Um, you know, Roy Moore is still on the ticket, and we'll see what happens there. Um, this John Conyers situation, the BuzzFeed broke um, news just last night on Monday night that he had um, been involved in a settlement around sexual harassment claims. We're not really sure what's going to happen there. It feels a little 
too early to say like, yes, these people are taken seriously. I think the jury is still out on like whether you, if you come forward against a male politician, like what kind of reaction you're going to get if you're going to feel like, yes, this was a good thing to do because, you know, there were consequences and it emboldened other women or if you're not going. And, you know, we talked about this a little bit on the weeds a few weeks ago, and this was before Franken and Conyers where we kind of talked about the party, you know, just didn't seem as concerned. But now you do have two politicians, two sitting Democrat congressmen who are accused of um, sexual assault or harassment. And and the, we, the Conyers story is even we don't know. bigger than that. I mean— that seemed like really I yeah. mean, some mis- misuse of funds and like settlements on the taxpayer dime. Like, I mean, I don't We'll see what happens with that. But I mean, th- that's a story. So, yeah. So I'm, I'm thankful. I mean, like that, that women feel a lot more able to talk about this. I'm thankful that you've seen some, you know, actions taken as a result for this. But I don't I, I don't know how far how far it's going to go. Okay, so I want to say two things about the Thanksgiving where people then tell you why they not be thankful for the things you're thankful for. <laughs> so we're one, trying to have an interesting well, discussion. So the listeners will be thankful for tuning in. So one thing, I, I do want to note on, on Matt's point about incompetence. That's why I'm pretty specific here. I am thankful for incompetence as relates to his authoritarian tendencies. Mm. I'm not thankful for incompetence mm. as relates to, say, North Korea. Mm. It's like a gerrymandered thankfulness. <laughs> And then I agree that the jury is out on what are the ultimate consequences here. I mean, this is not an unfurling of the mission accomplished banner, but this is a big change mm-hmm. from a year ago. Um, I think the amount of, I, I think how seriously things are being taken. I think that the amount of scrutiny, the amount of reporting resources going towards it, uh, you know, even you're seeing this reevaluation of Bill Clinton, for instance, among liberals, among, Matt wrote a great piece on this. If a Democratic president did what Bill Clinton did in a couple of years, I just don't think there's a way he survives. So I think that there's an underlying set of cultural changes that are, are, are going to be important. That doesn't mean full justice will be done. It very much doesn't mean that the people who've been victimized will be made right. Um, our, our colleague Carolyn Fromke had a very good piece about all the art we've lost. I mean, nobody ever gets made whole here. But I, I think that in terms of things that I think are bright spots mm-hmm. this year, um, and it's weird to call, I mean, this has been like a painful process for everybody, but I think that this is a movement that feels like it has a real potential to change, is that it currently is changing a lot. I don't know that we will get all the way to justice. I don't know that everybody will will face the consequences they properly deserve to face. But I think that there's a much better chance of it now than there was. And I also think a lot of men are in the media and, and everywhere else are going to have to think a lot harder correctly about their behavior going forward. I think a lot of people now see that there are consequences, and I hope that makes things better. And I think it is a chance to. When I think of the baseline also, and now, now I'm going to agree with your, your thankfulness, if the baseline is that we were going to accept that this was okay because this is behavior that the president engaged in and we knew about it and we elected him to, into office. So the baseline wouldn't have just been like the status quo we had before Trump. The baseline would have been just more of an acceptance of this behavior, like that if you are powerful, you can do those sort of things. And so we haven't gone in in that direction you could have seen coming out of a Trump election. We haven't gotten worse. We haven't gotten more accepting of this kind of harassment. And so if like that is your baseline, which is a plausible one to have coming out of the election, then it definitely feels like we're doing much better than you might have expected at this point last year. All right. Now that everybody thinks I've been thankful for too long and has pushed back on what I was thankful for, let's take a break. 
what do you like? Do you like a Pinot Noir? You, you like a Manhattan? Uh, other classic cocktails? A, a nice cold beer? So there's a lot of different tastes out there, but what nobody likes is needing to go out and, and pick up more drinks because uh, you're running out. Um, so introducing Saucy, the alcohol delivery app. Uh, they got your favorite wine, beer, liquor, spirits to your door on demand. Uh, it's it's Uber for alcohol. That's, that's what they're calling it. And, and if you're in Los Angeles, San Francisco, Chicago, San Diego, or Sacramento, your Saucy order will arrive at your door in 30 minutes or less, ready to drink. Uh, for the rest of us, Saucy will deliver beer, wine, or spirits to your door in two days or less nationwide. There are no order minimums, no delivery fees, no running to the store. If you've got the Saucy app, you've got a fully stocked bar on your phone. And even better, for a limited time, you can get $15 off when you download the Saucy app and enter promo code WEEDS. That's the Saucy app. It's spelled S-A-U-C-E-Y. And you enter promo code WEEDS for $15 off. Uh, get the app today. Use the promo code weeds. Uh, it's going to be a really convenient sort of fun way to get all the beer, wine, liquor, anything you want on demand. Really fun. Matt, what are you thankful um, for? You know, I mean, I, I say this year, I, I have been really thankful for journalism that I felt that we as an industry were kind of in a, in a bad place across the course of, of 2016 that, you know, I, that that this campaign had played out that was fascinating and, you know, momentous and, and unexpected, and that just in all kinds of ways, like, coverage had had fallen down. And, you know, I, I think Vox... Um, I, I think that that we, you know, did did pretty good relative to what people were doing, but also took part in systematic flaws. There was this, like, incredible overconfidence that we knew how presidential primary campaigns worked. There was a sort of misconstruing of what the general election polls were really saying. But then there was also like an incredible failure. I, I wrote this a couple days before the election, and it it really sunk with me after the election. A real failure to like convey to people what was at stake in the election? Like, what was this actually about, as opposed to just this kind of uh, wackadoodle show about Donald Trump? And I think over the past year, I mean, people's minds think about journalism these days naturally goes to the investigative pieces that have been done on these harassment issues, which have been really important, which show the sort of, you know, undying relevance of, of that kind of investigative work. But I also think that, like, people have had a pretty good sense of, like, What's up with this tax bill? What's up with the healthcare legislation that's moving through Congress? Um, public opinion has only an indirect influence on what actually happens in policy outcomes. That is, you know, by design, and it's as it should be. Uh, elected officials should, you know, feel free to put through unpopular corporate tax cuts if if that's what they want to do. Uh, but I think I have a real sense that like. I, I learn a lot from stories that I read. We publish a lot of stories that that I think are great. And I think that people have a pretty good handle on like what's what's going on in, in the Trump administration. And that, you know, there's endless stories about turmoil and tumult in, in the new media space. And, and there are real financial problems at some outlets and and real questions about about Google and, and Facebook and stuff. But but the internet has fundamentally brought to people both a like instant spread of things like, you know, you 
have a Harvey Weinstein uh, investigation in the New York Times and everybody hears about it. Um, you have the, uh, and the James Toback one, right, was in the LA Times, as I believe, which is a classic example of a, a news organization that 20 years ago would have been better resourced than it is today, but also had only a fraction of the reach it has today. You know, now great investigative work, everybody gets to know about it. And policy is really covered in a sustained, durable way, uh, you know, on this podcast, obviously, but like also in, in all kinds of places in a way that that I think is is good and that you know, some of it's Trump-specific, but some of it is just a, a reminder that after kind of years of gridlock and a weird campaign year, that, like, people are governing and, and political journalism can be informative. I think all that's right. And and I do think that there tends to be a tremendous amount of pessimism about trends in, in, in journalism. And there are places where I think that's correct. I, I think that the, the business situation for local journalism is really imperiled, um, uh, particularly like mid-city local journal, mid-sized city local journalism. I, I don't want to downplay any of that. But I also think that, as you say, what people have access to is better now than it has been. I think that some of the competition really is good. I think that there's been, for instance, competition to do better and better policy journalism. Like when we started Wonk Blog at The Post, Sarah, like there just weren't five things like Wonk Blog that dedicated themselves to policy all the time. And now there are. You've other things like the upshot and the agenda. And obviously, we take policy very seriously here at Vox. And so there's a lot of good stuff going on uh, uh, out there. And also, you know, I've heard a lot of pessimism in the last couple of days specifically about new media and, uh, and about the business of journalism. BuzzFeed reportedly missed a revenue target, possibly Vice did too. But also, BuzzFeed, if I was reading the stories right, is expected to make in the neighborhood of $300 million in revenues. Vice is missing an $800 million revenue target, so it's probably in the, you know, I don't know exactly, but six seven hundred range. Um, Vox Media is doing very well. I'm not at, at liberty to, to share what our revenue is, but but I'm I'm impressed by it. Um, and also, the, the New York Times is having huge, huge, huge success around digital subscriptions. Um, the Washington Post is in an incredibly financially healthy situation. You know, some players are going up, some players are going down. I think Time Magazine is more in more trouble. I mean, there's a lot happening here. But it just isn't the case as it was a couple of years ago that you can't fund a serious media organization off of digital advertising or digital subscriptions. I think that there you know, are going to be players that get washed out. Uh, that, that's how it is when you have a, a, an explosion of competition in a marketplace. But I also think some really good institutions are being built. Some really good reporting is happening at, the, at those institutions. And that you know, there is at least some reasons to be more optimistic, certainly than we were a couple of years ago, when everything looked like it was just cutbacks and there was no way to really fund well, it, reporting in digital. It looked like the way you did a website was that you built Upworthy or you put out cat gifts and like that was like the future of internet publishing. And I think it's been like a really refreshing thing to see that that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. Like I'm sure like when you do talks as a former editor-in-chief of Vox, people ask you about clickbait and like get really like cranky about like the idea of clickbait. But I think it's been a good year for like non-clickbait, yeah. like really great reporting and and it turns out like that's like I just know here at Vox like that's actually what people want to read which is a, a really refreshing thing suggesting that there is a way to like do some fantastic journalism and and get readers that readers are also interested in the pieces that like we get excited about and like we just you know talked about John Conyers and there was BuzzFeed that broke that story like there are serious news reporting invest um 
organization. They have a big investigative new unit. Um, they do really fantastic work. So I think it's nice to see that it's not only that folks are doing well, but they're doing well, like doing the type of things that I think most of us think are a good service to our readers. Speaking of digital journals and business models, before we hear what you're thankful for, let's take a break. Lyft is the the ride-sharing company that knows their drivers are what keep them moving, so they do everything they can to make sure their drivers are happy on every trip. Simple formula, happy drivers means happy passengers. That's why 9 out of 10 Lyft rides get a perfect 5-star rating. You can earn hundreds of dollars a week as a Lyft driver, plus tips. If you want to earn more, you drive more. It's never been easier to give yourself a raise. They were the first ride-sharing platform with tipping built right into the app, uh, because getting tips shouldn't depend on your passenger having, like, crumpled up uh, dollar bills in their pocket. You keep 100% of those tips and they add up fast. Drivers have been paid over $200 million since the feature was first introduced. With Express Pay, you get paid almost instantly instead of waiting for weeks. They've taken the guesswork out of pickups. They got a new amp device that uses color coding to help passengers find their drivers. Uh, so join the ride-sharing company that believes in treating people better. Go to lyft.com slash weeds today and get a $500 new driver bonus. That's lyft.com slash weeds, lyft.com slash weeds. Limited time only. Terms do apply. All right, Sarah, what are you thankful for? All right, so I, I have two. I have one that's more policy, one that's a little more personal. So I'll start with the policy. So I am thankful that I feel like this year we've gotten better at treating the opioid epidemic. So I think one of the things, I read a lot of Herman Lopez's, Lopez's coverage. I've done some coverage of the opioid epidemic myself. And one of the things I think has really held treatment back is kind of a fear of medication-assisted treatment, treating people with other substances, that there was kind of this, a lot of boogeymanning around, you're just replacing one drug with another, you're creating a lifelong addict, with drugs that actually worked really well, that were able to transition people to a normal, you know, more healthy life, but were often very stigmatized. You know, when I was in West Virginia, not this summer, but last summer, you know, I've talked to people who, you know, didn't want to go on these treatments because at work they would just be, you know, they would be thought of as like a junkie and an addict that, you know, if, it, if it's a choice between being on medication-assisted treatment or, you know, heroin, they might just stick with heroin because that's actually a little more socially acceptable where they are. And one of the things you've seen in a lot of cities and a lot of states and places that have been somewhat opposed to these is more of an openness to this sort of treatment, that you're seeing city firehouses stock up on things like buprenorphine, which is one of those medication-assisted treat- treatments. Um, methadone is another one that for a long time has been quite stigmatized that there is more of an openness to. And I think that really matters for, uh, you know, treating the opioid epidemic, having people feel like this is a medication they can take, just like Diabetics are going to have to take take insulin for the rest of their life. You might be someone who takes buprenorphine for the rest of your life. I think that's a change that is happening in a lot of places that have been hard hit by the opioid epidemic. And I think that matters. I think it's a huge problem. The number of deaths from the opioid epidemic has gotten higher from the deaths from AIDS during the AIDS epidemic in the 90s. It is a huge, huge public health crisis Um Tom Price, the former HHS secretary, was not someone who was very supportive of medication-assisted treatment. So I think it is a good thing he is out of office, even even though it's not for that reason, and that there is generally more of an openness to these things. So that is the policy thing I am I am thankful for. That's a good one. Thanks. Um, no one's going to critique it. Well, we can talk about it after I get through my two. Um, the second one is a little more personal. I'm actually really thankful 
for this podcast, Aww. which I, okay, okay, stop, um, which I've gotten to host with you guys for about two years. And, you know, I think I came to the podcast with a somewhat different background than you guys as, you know, a very, not super narrow, but a beat reporter. Like I wrote a lot about healthcare and I'd write my stories. I did a lot less opinion work. I did a lot less work on other subjects. And one of the great things about this podcast, which was really, I'd say, a nerve-wracking thing when I started hosting it, but has transitioned into a great thing that I'm thankful for, is the ability to have a chance to talk to you guys about a lot of different topics, to feel more confident talking in front of all the people who listen to us about topics that are not the ones I've spent the past eight years learning about. It has been, it has been really... This is very selfish. I, I love our listeners. You all are fantastic. But personally, it has been a great experience for me as a journalist to become confident talking about things that are not healthcare and learning about those things and getting involved in covering those things. That has been something I have been pretty thankful for here at Vox over the past year. Yeah, I'm very thankful for for this podcast, just for podcasting in general. <laughs> it's been one of the really nice things has emerged in media. Um, and I am, uh, unlike Sarah, I'm thankful for our listeners, too. <laughs> no, I'm thankful for the listeners, too. I'm only resentful. <laughs> but but one reason is that this is, look, we, we, we all know this a bit, that the, the media has moved in this kind of social direction. You package things very tightly. You're, you know, you, 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 you're operating in a world where there's a lot of competition for people's attention. So you've got to be, like, very, like, tight and to the point. And, like, the videos are short and the whole thing is... You know, it's not that there isn't a space for long form and all, and all the rest of it, but but it's a fast moving informational sphere, and I really think that podcast because it's often the second thing people are doing. It's one of these rare places where you can let things breathe a little bit. You can be uncertain. You can try out ideas. You can go down weird alleys. And you know, the fact that there's an audience out there willing to to listen and to engage and to to, to listen to you generously, right? To maybe if you misspeak a little bit, to not you know, like get, hang you up to hang you out to dry on the internet. That that's been really nice. It feels like a little bit like early blogging did to me. I mean, it's an incredible joy to get to host it with the two of you and to learn from the two of you. But it's also been really nice to see the community that is built up around this podcast. I really love the Weeds email box. Like I went to the Weeds Facebook group a couple of days ago to ask for some help thinking up questions for, for some interviews I was about to conduct. And I just got incredibly thoughtful, great answers. And every time I go there, I'm struck by just like how thoughtful and interesting the discussion is. It's like really nice to see and, and to be able to see people in the audience's you know, they could just be here too, right? Like they could just be sitting there. They seem to know more white papers than we do. Like it's a it's a cool thing. It's cool to realize you're part of this community. The live shows we've done over the past mm -hmm. year have been really fun. Um, so it, it's been a really nice, it's been nice and it's been different. It, it it feels like a nicer part of the media than like anywhere else. No one's going to listen to a podcast for an hour just to troll something dumb you said, which is, <laughs> I'm thankful for that. Yeah, I mean, there's that and there's there's more, um, I mean, that's what I'm saying, but it, it, it reminds me of of blogs and, and RSS readers where it's more about developing a relationship, you know, over time with people who, you know, will like get jokes and, and things like that instead of, uh, you know, drive by night, Facebook shares. Not that there's anything wrong with drive by night, Facebook shares. But it's not I, the I, only I, thing you want. <laughs> I'm very thankful for drive by night, <laughs> particularly for people who recognize that it's important to hit to like reshare before clicking through and reading the story. Because <laughs> you might forget by the time you get to the end. But I think so. As someone like who missed early blogging days, like yeah. I feel like I get a version of that with totally. the weeds, which has been fantastic. So, yeah, absolutely. I, I've, I yeah. learn a ton from podcasts, both from doing them and listening mm -hmm. to them. It's a 
I don't know. It's one thing that's fun about early blogging days is you learned weirder things. Mm-hmm. Um, big media, including places like Vox, are a little bit more. They're more structured by like the topics that are quote unquote in the news. Um, and they're less like just people's idiosyncratic obsessions. And blogs were great because they had a lot of people's idiosyncratic obsessions. Like I've learned so much about zoning policy from Matt. And, uh, you know, there, there are a bunch of things in people like that. Listening to podcasts, just one thing that is, is nice about it is that it has expanded my media diet into more unusual alleys and and, and places. Um, I, I've really liked that about it. Uh, it. It's not just that I get to do it, but I'm a, like a real consumer. I'm a big fan. Um, I am thankful for a bunch of great podcasts, including all the ones we talk about at Vox Media. But I was thinking the other day, Char- Charles Manson just died. And I'm a big fan of the podcast, uh, You Must Remember This, that did an amazing- oh, I don't listen to non-Vox Media podcasts. did an amazing 10-part series on Charles Manson uh, that, that you should check out. And it's just, it's cool. Like, I would never have learned about that in that level of detail if there wasn't like a beautifully produced podcast about Hollywood history that is just great. And so I'm into it because it's great. It's great. Yeah. Podcasting is great. I like podcasts. <laughs> Let's take a break. Because you know what's not great? Discriminating against surgeons. <laughs> It's the holidays. A lot of people are are thinking about uh, acting more charitably, thinking about how thankful they are for what they have. They want to help other people. Uh, But how can you maximize the amount of good that you actually accomplish with every dollar that you give? Uh, The answer to that is GiveWell. This is an organization. It's a a small group, but a really good one. They do in-depth, detailed research to identify evidence-backed, cost-effective programs helping the neediest people in the world. Uh, So their website, www.givewell.org, provides a very short list of top charities that have met GiveWell's exacting standards. Uh, GiveWell is unique because they focus on how much good a charity accomplishes. It's not just like a, a simple metric of, of administrative costs or something. Uh, so how many lives does the charity save or how much does someone's income increase with each dollar donated? Uh, so that's it's harder to answer those questions, but they're the most important questions. Their current top charities do things like programs that prevent child deaths from malaria, they provide direct cash transfers to very poor people in East Africa, and all the details Details of GiveWell's work are available for free on their website. They deeply vet scientific evidence for programs. Their charity reviews are accompanied by hundreds of footnotes. They publish quantitative cost-effectiveness models, so you can dive into all the details if you're interested. Uh, but if you only want to spend a few minutes, if you don't have a lot of time, you can just give to GiveWell's top charities and leverage the thousands of hours its staff has put into finding exceptional charities. All right, so we are thankful to have a great white paper today as well. It is called Interpreting Signals in the Labor Market, Evidence from Medical Referrals by Heather Sarsons, um, who I believe is a PhD student at Harvard. And she did a really interesting study. So she looked at what happens um, when primary care doctors refer patients to surgeons and one of those patients has a one of those surgeons has a patient die unexpectedly. Basically, how do primary care doctors react? Do they stop referring to that person? Do they keep referring? And she finds that it is very, very different when you look at the surgeon's gender. So the first thing she shows in this paper is that when a female surgeon has a patient unexpectedly die, her referrals will decline. Male surgeons, their referrals will stay the same. So it suggests there's some kind of division there. But then I think the finding that really jumped out at me the most, the most depressing finding of this um, of this paper is that it wasn't just that one female surgeon whose referrals would drop. That primary care doctor who, you know, was referring to surgeons at a female surgeon who unexpectedly died would stop referring 
to female surgeons in general. You would see the referrals just decline to women surgeons, which suggests there's like a grouping going on, probably not consciously, like probably not. I don't think this is a primary care to doctor deciding in their head, well, you know, Dr. Smith had a patient die and she's female, therefore I now refer to male surgeons. But there is, you know, pretty striking evidence in here that there's kind of a discrimination against that group of surgeons. And the thing that translates into one of the things she looks at is Medicare payments to these surgeons. And you just see a downward slope for female surgeons. You see there, after you have an unexpected patient death among one female surgeon, just the Medicare reimbursements start to trickle down while the line for men just remains very steady. And I think this, it's a clear example of something that can often be very, very hard to spot in your day-to-day life of a discrimination that that is really somewhat invisible. So I think you could, you know, if you are a female surgeon and you have a patient unexpectedly die, you might think, oh gosh, like of course people aren't referring to me. Like I had a patient unexpectedly die. You wouldn't really have a global sense of like what is going on with men, with other surgeons. And this same thing, you know, if you're a female surgeon seeing your referrals go down, you know, it's not like you don't know Surgeon X who had a patient die. You're seeing fewer referrals. And you're thinking maybe something's going on. I don't know what it is. And it suggests a really unfortunate grouping that happens. It seems to be like kind of a mental heuristic of saying, well, we had a bad experience with one surgeon and and using, and I'm sure this, there's other research showing this happens by race, happens in other ways too, but basically taking a minority group and making a larger assumption about that group after one particular experience. This reminded me of a, of a really great comic from XKCD, which is a, a great comic series on, on the internet, uh, where it's just, the comic's just titled How It Works, and it is two panels, and in the first you see like two stick figures, and like one of them is writing a math problem on the board, and presumably the math problem is wrong, and so the other stick figure just says, you're bad at math. And in the next one, there are two stick figures and it's a girl stick figure writing a math problem on the board. And the other stick figure says, girls are bad at math. And, and this is very often the essence of bigotry, of, of, of racism, of, of misogyny. It is taking people and using them to stereotype or see them, seeing them as like representative of whole groups, right? Seeing people not as individuals, but seeing their groups first before you see them. And it is something that we are better at not doing among ourselves than among sort of whatever we think of as the out group, right? Or, or, or another group. Like we often joke that Canadians are polite, right? I don't think it's like a terrible kind of bigotry, but I think it is comes from like being like we meet some polite Canadians and, you know, it's like, well, great, they're all polite. And that has much more sinister manifestations too. And, and something I think you're seeing here is that male doctors are very able to treat other male surgeons as individuals and possibly somewhat subconsciously they're treating female surgeons as um as not mm-hmm. individuals i wonder i think it was actually all doctors so we're not i, I don't know if it's just right. i'm gonna look through the papers right. I, I could just say but, that again yeah i think it's all doctors so so i think something you're seeing here is that primary care doctors are, are finding it easy to treat male surgeons and and this the the average surgeon is male as individuals and female surgeons they're treating as a group um, and so they're they're ascribing the the sins of one to the to the entire group, and it's sad. And it but it is also, as you say, a really really useful look into how this happens. In part because it's a look into a place where it's happening where you kind of wouldn't expect it to be right. And 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 clearly it's not a high it's not an atmosphere where people are trying to do this. Like it's happening because it's pretty deeply 
ingrained. One thing I, I, I saw looking looking at this paper in, in, in the footnotes is that the the, the author uh, Heather Sarsons is um, is on the the job market currently, um, and so I, I was looking up her her other stuff because you know you want you want to give somebody a boost, prove that getting on the weeds is how you get those good tenure track jobs, um, and she actually has like a couple of really good sort of papers on on gender dynamics in, in different areas. One of them is called Confidence Men, and it just looks at surveys of economists as experts. Uh, University of Chicago does this one and asks them, like, should we raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour? You know, stuff like this. And she shows that uh, male economists are both more likely to uh, endorse extreme positions and also more likely to rate themselves as highly confident in their views than, than women economists. Um, and then she has one about co-authoring of papers where she shows that um, – in economics, uh, women who co-author a lot of papers become less likely to get tenure than women who only solo author papers, uh, whereas among men, there there is no such uh, implication. So it seems like people are subconsciously attributing multi-authored papers disproportionately to the male authors uh, over over the, the, the female ones. And, you know, that's that's like a world away from from this surgeon topic as like a empirical case study, but it's the same, you know, underlying phenomenon. And it's what, what's challenging is that it becomes hard to know. And in, in, the reason economics as a field has not traditionally grappled with these kind of discrimination dynamics is that economics as a putative science is about trying to draw like generalities across economic domains. And part of what she's showing across these different papers is like that gender discrimination findings that they don't like shock you. It's not like I would never in a million years have believed that male economists are more overconfident than women. <laughs> That's kind of what you think, but it's it's difficult looking at these things to say like, okay, what is the like what is the model, right? Like what is the systematic change to how we understand, uh, you know, the, the title here is interpreting signals in the labor market, right? But so it's like, what do we know from this? Like, we know in this one particular labor market that there's evidence of this one particular kind of discrimination. And as like common sense, we can project that out and say, like, there's probably more discrimination that is like this in other ways. But like, how much and like where and how and why and like there's so much that we don't like we don't really know and yet i always see whenever the like annual cliche gender pay gap debates come out people being extremely overconfident that this has already been explained when like we're seeing that there's just incredible quantities of empirical work right like the fact that female surgeons suffer from this kind of discrimination is not like in the it doesn't like move macroeconomic aggregates because it's only surgeons, but like, is it really only surgeons? I mean, nobody, nobody could possibly believe I, mean, I think that. it also just speaks to how challenging like some of the policies to address the gender wage gap are like, so this is creating a wage gap. Like you are seeing in the paper, female surgeons are get, after an unexpected death among one female surgeon, you're seeing Medicare reimbursements decline, which, which um, Heather Sarsons kind of takes as indicative of they are getting, less money at that point. And I don't know, like, how it, it's a tough thing to design an intervention for. There are a lot of things that drive the gender wage gap. I did a big um, 
illustrated explainer on the gender wage gap about a year or two ago. A lot of it has to do with flexibility of schedules, but there are also like a lot of things like Heather's picking up on in her research that are going to drive it. And they're tough things to to get at because, again, I don't think it's primary care. I, I mean, I guess you could do some kind of like randomized assignment of referrals. I, I guess you could get into it that way. But a, a lot of it is not, it's not overt like we are going to pay women 79 cents on the dollar at our store. It's a lot of other things that are less overt. You know, when I've talked to Claudia Golden, who is at Harvard, is actually one of the advisors um, to Heather Sarsons on this paper. She's talked about it's not it's not overt discrimination in most cases. It's not, you know, offering lower salaries to someone who's a, win- a woman. It's a lot more subtle. It's a lot more, um, it's not necessarily targeted women, but instead you have a lot of structural parts of the labor market that end up discriminating in, against women in more subtle ways. And that makes it a, it makes it a challenging problem to tackle. But isn't this, I mean, this is a case where a more bureaucratized healthcare system, right? Where like a dread government takeover, where like you don't choose your own doctors and, you know, some nightmarish central planner just allocates you based on a formula. Like that would be a big improvement here, right? Like if the if the system was like you had to like go put down in a database, like I referred a patient to a surgeon and then we had this bad outcome and then like that just sort of went into a compilation. Mm-hmm. Like you wouldn't well, be able yeah, to, I'm, right? It's like yeah. all this like freelance, like individual like primary care providers, like you ask them and you're like, doctor, who should I go see about this? And you're like expecting the doctor to give you a good answer, but like it turns out the doctor, the doctor frankly has no incentive to do good referrals, right? Like nothing bad happens to a primary care provider whose uh, surgical referral decisions are just like across the board. I don't know, if your patients keep dying in surgery, I imagine your primary care practice declines. There has <laughs> been, I mean, there has been some work from Medicare to to rate. I know hospitals particularly. I'm not quite as sure about doctors, but to try and do some kind of rating system to essentially let people um, be able to think for themselves. Like, where do I want to be referred to? What is the high? Because most people, I don't think, care that much about the gender of their provider, but maybe I'm underestimating that. They, they want to go somewhere where they're, they're not going to die unexpectedly, where they're going to survive and have a healthy recovery. Those quality rankings turn out to be really, really hard to do. It's not just unexpected deaths. There's infections. There's other, like, there's, so many different ways you can rank on quality that just deciding like, okay, who is a good doctor turns out to be an incredibly complex question. So the the federal government has done more work towards that in recent years. But yeah, then it's hard to see us moving to a system where, you know, the government says, okay, like, we put you into our algorithm and like, this is the person that you get referred to because like, this is the quality that they offer. And like, we're going to take human choice out of it. Um, it's hard to see that government. Yeah, take I, I've always, I've always, I've already mentioned Rebecca Troister once in this episode, but something I was thinking about that she said um, in a piece of hers recently is that the only true solution is the one that is hardest to envision, which is equality. We can come up with backdoor solutions to this, right? If we had a really good way of ranking doctors by quality, surgeons by quality, Great. Like that, that actually would get rid of the problem if whether it's a government takeover or not. I mean, even if insurers had really, really good quality measures and just said, well, I'm only going to reimburse 
if you're going to a doctor rated B plus above or a surgeon. Well, but as an insurer, right? If you have a chronically ill patient, you're much better off if he gets referred to a surgeon who kills him. I I I think I have a reasonably low opinion of some insurers than I do. Great if like. I'm not not going down the road. I don't think that's how insurers think of their own work, to be fair. Um, (laughs) We'll see. (laughs) That'll be, someone should do a job market paper on that. (laughs) But um, there are ways to to solve things, right? Across a lot of different um, industries, if you're really, really able to take subjectivity out of decision making and just like, you know, do it really clearly on quality and results, but that's hard to do. And so some of this stuff we just like, for these things to stop happening, we need to, it's good to bring them into the light one so people can think about their behavior and check it. So it'd be great for more people to hear about this paper, which the the weeds is hopefully helping with. And then secondarily, um, yeah, like these things are, are a reminder that our society has a lot of quiet forms of discrimination and bigotry and bad thinking and, and all kinds of things in it. And it th- there aren't great solutions because Changing culture is really hard. All right. That's another great episode. <laughs> All right. We got to get out of here. <laughs> we live here now. There's been a lot happening in the recording of the weeds today that, that you all are not privy to, um, but it's been great. Thank you to Sarah and to Matt. Um, thankful to you. I'm thankful to Peter Leonard, the weeds, awesome audio engineer and producer who does a great job every week. And is a reason you hear the weeds and a reason we are able to do it. Um, thank you to the Vox Media Podcast Network for being great. Thank you to all of you for being great. Have a great Thanksgiving. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs>